My name is Sanjay Merchant. I'm a teaching pastor here, and I'm also a professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. So I'm always glad to come out and see you guys. Um, we're continuing on in our series, Not Alone. Um, <clears throat> started a few weeks ago with, with Pat talking about the Father. Last week, Scott talked about the Son. Can you guess what's happening next? <laughs> If you've been around church for a while, you know what's coming next. Today, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm so excited, and I'm really nervous, really humbled to be talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, if you can imagine somebody asking, could you talk to the church, edify them, teach them, um, help them, help all of us think through this person of the Holy Spirit and whom we live and move and have our being? It's pretty humbling. Um, but I'm so happy. I'm so excited to be able to share this with you today. We've had a great couple of, uh, of sermons so far, the Father and the Son. So I want to recap a little bit of that, the work that Pat and Scott have already done, and then we'll move on to the Spirit. And I want to bring that together for you, of course, the Father, Son, and Spirit in this idea of the doctrine of the Trinity. So anyway, there's a lot, right? So... Uh, <clears throat> The person, uh, let, me, let me start with this. I've forgotten that I'm going to start here. Uh, I'm going to start with you in John, 1 John 4, 6 through 16. 1 John 4, 6 through 16. John tells us something stunning about God that the world had never heard before. Nobody had ever heard this before when John said this. He says, he encourages his, 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 uh, his church Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God, uh, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The world had never heard that before. The world had never heard those words before. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in God, abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. The world, again, had never heard those words before, that God is love. Earlier on in 1 John, John says God is light, and the world had heard that. Certain Greek philosophers and um, poets had said such things before, but nobody had ever said that God is love. Maybe God is very loving, Maybe God loves, but God is love. It's a pretty shocking claim. So when Jesus comes preaching and teaching about his Father in heaven, 
He teaches something that the world has not seen before and has not known before. And this is what Pat talked about a couple weeks ago. So just to summarize, to recap, first and foremost, who is God that Jesus comes preaching and teaching about? The God that he's talking about is the God of Israel. The God of Israel is the one and only true God. There are no other gods. At first, the world believes that there are many other gods. We see God at creation. We follow God's plans and purposes through the fall and through the stories of Genesis. And then when the book of Exodus opens, God has been silent for about 400 years. And it seems that the God of the Hebrews is really not even well known by the Hebrews anymore. The Hebrews are a slave nation, and they're under the um, oppression of the gods of Egypt. God calls his people again, and through Moses and Aaron, topples all the gods of Egypt. And to Egypt's humiliation, the God of this slave nation proves that he's stronger, which is shocking to Egypt and shocking to the rest of the ancient Near East. And one by one, the false gods fall. Baal of the Canaanites, where is he now, right? Dagon, the god of the Philistines, his statue fell down before the ark of Yahweh and broke and shattered into pieces. Where are those gods now? Whole societies, whole kingdoms used to be ordered around the worship of of those gods. We don't even know their names anymore. We certainly don't care. They're false gods. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still worshipped throughout the entire earth. The God of Israel is the true God. That's the God that Jesus comes preaching and teaching about, and all the other gods have fallen. That God, the creator of the world, who took care, loved the world. So God loves the world. And John tells us why. That's God's nature in 1 John 4. God is love. He can't do otherwise. That's exactly what he is by nature. So Pat told us that a few weeks ago. That very famous passage, we all know this passage, right? If you watch any football, you've known this passage for decades, John 3, 16 through 17. There used to be a guy years ago that he, uh, I don't know if you saw him, he'd wear like, a, uh, like one of those clown wigs, like a rainbow clown wig, and he'd always have John 3, 16. Um, pretty colorful guy, I guess. Uh, kind of a weirdo. Uh, John 3, 16, but it became the most famous uh, Bible passage. Everybody knows this. For God so loved the world that God, that he, Uh, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but but in order that the world might be saved through him. So that's John quoting Jesus. So why does John say in 1 John 4 that God is love? He learned this from Jesus himself, from Jesus' own words. So that's who the Father is. Now last week Pat told us about the Son, The Father is, I didn't mention this, the Father is God above us, God out there, the transcendent creator God. Scott told us this last week, who is Jesus? He is Emmanuel, which literally means God with us, God present with us, God in human flesh. The Son is the Messiah of Israel, the promised King of Israel, and that promise of of a coming King who will reign forever is repeated time and time again, this mysterious figure who would be a descendant of the great King David, who would somehow be a human king because he's a descendant of David, but nonetheless rule on his throne forever. How on earth does that work? This Messiah, this promised Christ, is who the Son is. And what's his 
purpose and his mission as Messiah, it's to save the lost. He comes to seek and to save and to deliver, to, uh, deliver and to rule and reign in peace forever. So Paul tells us this in Ephesians 1, 7. We know this. We believe this. In him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of Christ. So that's the Father and the Son. And then Jesus, in his closing dialogues, we see this especially in the Gospel of John, John 14 and forward, Jesus has a number of things to say to his disciples as he's preparing to go. He knows that he's going to the cross, and he warns them that I'm leaving you. In John 14, 18, he says, I'm leaving you. And in the context of revealing to them the coming of the Holy Spirit, he says, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. You won't be alone. That's the title of, or that's the, uh, the theme of this series, right? Not alone. The Holy Spirit is the promise from Jesus. Although I'm leaving you and you won't see me, you're not alone. The Holy Spirit is the helper of the church. And his mission and purpose in us and through us is to sanctify So whereas the Father is God above us, God out there, the creator who's transcendent and great and glorious and holy and foreign and unknown, mysterious, Jesus is God with us, God revealed in human flesh. John says we saw him and we beheld him, we touched him, we encountered God in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is finally God in us. What is the work of the Spirit? The work of the Spirit is to sanctify. So, for example, John 16, 8, the Spirit convicts the world of sin. We don't know who we are or what we are apart from the Spirit teaching us and telling us who we are because we're, uh, we incessantly deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves about who we are and what we are and how we live and what's right and why I'm justified in this. We lie to ourselves all the time, but the Spirit tells us the truth. So part of the Spirit's work of sanctifying, where again, the Son saves, but the Spirit sanctifies, the Spirit transforms, first and foremost is to tell us and to explain to us what we won't tell ourselves about ourselves, what we really are. And then after doing that, in our lives, the Spirit glorifies the Son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus revealed himself, but John says in John 1, the world didn't know him, didn't understand him. Even his own disciples were saying, Lord, just speak to us plainly and clearly. We don't know what you're saying. The Spirit teaches those things. The Spirit teaches and guides the church. The Spirit helps us pray when we don't know what to pray. And importantly, we think about this all the time, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The the Spirit fills us with the power to do God's will. Now, we might think about things like this, the Spirit being given to us, living in us, we in the Spirit having the power to to do God's will, the power to live a life like Jesus Christ. When you think of the sort of sanctified life, if you're a person, and I suspect you are, that wants to dedicate your life to God, to know Him, to live according to His will for your life, Partially because you know it will lead to your own happiness 
and also partially because you're learning to love him for his sake, not just for your own self-interested reasons. But there's a mix, right? We love him because we know it's good for us, and we also love him because we know it's right. And we want to love him for his own sake, and we're learning progressively to do that, and we're somewhere in that process. And if you're in the same, same place, you think of what it would be like to be like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to think like him, to believe like him. If we were like the apostles, we would go around commanding evil spirits out of people and, and, and uh, commanding the, the, the sick to stand up and to be healthy and to walk, and we'd do all those amazing things. Is that what the power of the Holy Spirit's about? Raising the dead, casting out demons, preaching to crowds and seeing the conversion of thousands and they begin speaking in tongues. Is that what the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit's about? Yeah, sure, why not? Why not? It's biblical, of course. Is that what we commonly see in our lives? I certainly don't see that daily in my life. And it's not to say that God can't or won't do those things, but I realize that my mundane life and my life in the Holy Spirit is just more common. It's just more rudimentary. But nonetheless, the power of the Spirit is just so essential for living a daily life. There's a man, let me give you an example of a really powerful event, a really powerful Holy Spirit event that happened years and years ago that still I, I think about all the time. There's a man who um, I really i am very close to, and I, I want to be a little bit vague about this um, out of respect for him, but, and, and I love him very much. Um, he's a Hindu. And he had a very powerful experience, a very powerful vision of Jesus Christ. I was present there with him when it happened. So he had a very private vision of Jesus Christ. He actually passed out as we were talking. He passed out and fell right on my chest. I won't go into all the details of it because, again, I want to be um, respectful. But I saw in his eyes, and he was shaking, I saw that he had seen Jesus Christ. And he, as he described what he saw in this vision, he saw Jesus standing in a in a dome of light. That's what he said. And I responded to him, what you saw was Jesus standing in the entryway of the tomb. I don't know how I knew that in the moment. Uh, I didn't know what to say. And so I just went with what seemed to be right to me. And he described Jesus in this way that was biblical. He, he in fact, he described smelling spices. And he was overwhelmed. He was like viscerally overwhelmed. It's not just something that he saw with his mind, but he, could, he said, do you smell those spices? And again, I, this has never happened to me before, never happened since. I didn't know what to say. I said, those are the spices that Jesus' disciples, his female disciples, anointed him with after his crucifixion and death. They anointed him with oils and spices and buried him along with Joseph of Arimathea in that tomb where you're seeing Jesus, and those are the spices that you're smelling. I just said that, right? Uh, I didn't go and check with anyone as to whether that was right or get any opinions. He had a very powerful conversion to Jesus Christ. I've never had anything like that happen before or since. That's not a common occurrence in my life, not a common occurrence in his life. Well, this man who I love very much and care very much for, for a few years, he lived a life devoted to the Lord. He was pursuing a Christian life, and his father in India died. He went back to India, buried his father, 
And when he came back and I saw him again, he never again wanted to talk about Jesus. And he returned to Hinduism. Okay, for me, that's a painful thing. I hardly ever share that story. I've never done this in a church, shared that story. I've shared it a few times at school. It's a very painful story for me. Um, I don't know why. I don't know how. I, I didn't see it. I didn't smell the spices. That still impacts me. And, you know, if there are skeptics and atheists, I know what they're going to do. They're going to roll their eyes. Maybe they won't go so far as to say that I'm just lying. I just made it up. I'm just telling you. That's what happened. I don't care if anyone thinks I'm telling the truth or lying. I was there, and that's what happened. And I can't reproduce it. I can't prove it. And so I know it's not going to have a, a huge impact as a secondhand story on people who are already non-believers. It's not going to blow their hair back, and they're going to say, oh, Jesus is Lord because you just told me this story. I understand that. But for me and for him, we know. And I don't know why he returned to Hinduism. I don't understand it. But there was a powerful move of the Holy Spirit, and it just didn't stick. It just didn't stick. Not because God failed. It was the choices that he made. And I hope that that's not the final choice in his life. But, again, the work of the Spirit can be powerful in those ways, and you might have certain expectations that that would change everything, and that's not necessarily true because we're very fickle. We're very stubborn. We lie to ourselves, and humans do these sorts of things, right? And so the Holy Spirit doesn't just do great and powerful things as a parlor trick or just for show. He does it to glorify the Son. He does it to transform us. I can tell you about another life. Um, My mother-in-law passed away a few months ago. And my family is still up on Orcas Island. Um, we were just there. I was just there yesterday, and I've come back um, to, to be with you guys, and they're going to join me um, tomorrow. They're going to stay uh, another day. Her life was a life dedicated to the Lord. She lived a beautiful life of simple discipleship. She prayed daily for her husband, for her parents for her siblings, for her children, and her grandchildren. She loved them, and her gift was generosity. She gave and gave and gave and never thought about anything in return. That's the testimony of her life. And so I was at her memorial yesterday. Siblings, children, grandchildren, I was so proud to see her grandchildren, some of them are mine, my own children, stand up and testify. And they all said the same thing. None of them were coached. None of them wrote it down. They just stood up and said from their own hearts how giving she was, how loving she was. It was a time of mourning. It was a time of celebration. The tears were happy tears. It was amazing. It was healing. My children were crying. I was crying. And it was healing. It was so wonderful. And she's gone. We won't see her again in this life. And that's sad, but there's no lament. That is a life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are two very different lives. One had uh, big explosions and visions, and the other one, my mother-in-law never had that. Never happened in her life. Never had big visions, never smelled the spices in the tomb, but lived faithfully. And the testimony of her life is a pretty rare testimony. A lot of people live their lives and we pass away, and it's not the testimony of their lives where there are tens of grandchildren who are blessed and lives have been transformed. I was so 
overjoyed that my children were there at her memorial hearing the testimony of her life. I'm hoping that has a generational impact on them. I hope they never forget. I know they won't. And the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that operated in her is operating in them. She wasn't perfect. You know, I'm married to her daughter, and mothers and daughters know each other well. I can't tell you how many times she told me about her mother's shortcomings, right? My wife would complain about her mother. Of course, all daughters do that. She wasn't a perfect woman, but she treated me like a son. She was loving and sweet, and that's how I remember her. And my relationship with her as her son-in-law wasn't perfect. There's a little bit of a rivalry, right? When the son-in-law comes around, and uh, who's is she, right? Is she, she still mom's, or is she really his now? And there's a little bit of a, of a rivalry, and yet she treated me like a son. Um, and again, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the very same Spirit that filled Jesus Christ. So in John 20, verse 22, before Jesus ascended, he breathed on his disciples, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed out of himself the same spirit that was in him into them. That's the spirit that's breathed into us. Now, my mother-in-law, Carolyn, she died of of heart failure. Her heart just became so weak at the end of her life, she couldn't even walk up the stairs. She had to be helped up the stairs. And in fact, the last few days of her life, she just stayed where she was upstairs and didn't go up and down the stairs anymore. And her heart just wasn't strong anymore. Imagine that... Her heart could be taken out, and of course there are such things as heart transplants, but you get an artificial heart. Imagine instead, her heart was removed, and the heart of the strongest endurance athlete, the most healthy person in the world, was put in her, right? It would, I mean, the rest of the system is still what it was, but imagine the heart were totally new. It would rejuvenate her life and her health. She would go running up and down the stairs. Now, she wouldn't necessarily have all of the energy and endurance of the, of the athlete that donated the heart, whose you know, muscles are very strong and is much younger or something like that, but it would bring health to the whole body. And if that heart remained as strong as it was, it would re- rejuvenate her whole life. Am I right? That didn't happen to her physically, but that happened to her spiritually. Her dying and decaying soul was rejuvenated, and she was breathed into many, many years ago by the Holy Spirit. And so that's the same spirit. That's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. So now I want to get on to this very difficult idea of the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. That's called the Trinity. All right. The Father is God. And the Son is begotten of the Father. In fact, the Bible calls him the only begotten Son, the only Son of God. I've got a couple sons. Let me just tell you about my first son. My oldest son, his name is Nathaniel. If he were here, he'd be standing next to me, and like a lot of fathers and sons, you'd say, ah, I see it. Yeah, he's got to be your son, right? I see the resemblance. Sometimes, if a father has a son that really resembles him, you look back at your old pictures, and you're like, I look back at some old high school pictures, and I say, that's Nathaniel. That looks just like Nathaniel. Someone will say, he's the spitting image of his father. I had an old friend that saw a picture of him. I haven't seen her since high school. And she said to me, she saw his his picture online. She said, that's exactly how I remember remember you. Because her mental image of me is stuck back in high school. And she saw him and she said, I thought that was you. He's the spitting image of his father. Jesus Christ is begotten of the father. 
he's not just the spitting image of his father, but he's the exact representation, the New Testament says. Jesus goes so far as to say, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's not saying that he is the father, but he fully encapsulates everything that the father is. So I pass on my genetics to my son, Nathaniel, and so he has certain physical traits and even certain psychological and emotional traits that he gets from me. Now, of course, he gets also physical and psychological and emotional traits from his mother. But as I pass along my traits and my genetics to him, so there he is, and he has some of those things. Fundamentally, he's human. Why is he human? Because he's begotten of humans. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Guess what he is? He's divine. That's why in John 5 they say, you say that you're the Son of God, you're making yourself out to be equal with God. They thought that to be blasphemous. Jesus didn't say, we're all sons and daughters of God, we're all children of God, and I'm a son of God. He doesn't do that. He says, no, no, I'm the only begotten Son of God. You don't even know him. Okay, those are fighting words, right? That's offensive. He says, your father's the devil to the Pharisees, by the way. Okay, that's, that's a tough statement. Jesus makes himself out to be divine by saying, I'm the only begotten son of God. And that's exactly what he meant. That's why John, uh, sorry, Paul says in Colossians 2, Colossians 2, 9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is fully divine. The fullness of deity dwells in him. He's 100% divine. Now, he's also human, 100% human, which is the mystery of the incarnation. But my son, Nathaniel, I'll tell you, he's 100% human. That's all he's got because his, his full DNA, his full genetics is all human. So he's, he's all human. He's nothing else. And so Jesus Christ, begotten of God, who is incomparable, of whom there is no one else like him, there's no one else of his species, he's begotten of God, therefore he is also fully God. But the difference between human genetics and human begetting and divine begetting is that humans, of course, we donate only part, only genetic parts. Father donates sperm, mother donates egg, they come together, you have an embryo, you now have a third thing, a new human being. God doesn't have any parts. There's no divine sperm and egg to be broken off from his being. So when he donates his genetics, he donates everything that he is. That's why the fullness of deity dwells in him. That's why Jesus can say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no more divinity behind me. All of God is in here. I am the walking encapsulation of the temple and the full presence of God is in me. I am the living ark in which the spirit of God abides. I am God present with you. It's amazing. But he's not saying that he is the Father. He is definitely sent of the Father. He's not lying about that. When he says, I love the Father and the Father loves me, he's not lying. He's not just talking about himself in another way. There really is a real distinction between him and the Father. Now, that's hard to think about. That's the mystery of the Trinity. So let's extend the analogy. This is how ancient theologians extended the analogy. We can think of the birthing analogy, right? And and the Bible says that the Son is in the bosom of the Father, kind of like the womb of the Father, which is kind of weird to think about, but of course there's no goddess with whom to conceive. And so there's no moment of conception. There's no moment at which God becomes pregnant with his son. He's eternally father, so he eternally begets the son. The son is every bit as divine as he is, and so the son is every bit as eternal as the father, right? And so he's eternally begotten in the father because there's no moment of conception. So let's extend the analogy, and instead of thinking of birthing, let's think about the son, S-U-N, and its radiance. As long as the sun exists, so it radiates light and heat into the world. And so there's a difference between the sun and the sunlight. So there's a difference between the father and the son. In fact, the Bible says this. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus Christ radiates out from the father and the exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So imagine, again, if the sun were eternal, then the sunlight would eternally radiate out, and clearly there's a difference between the sun and the sunlight. Now let's include the person of the spirit. Who is the person of the spirit in this analogy? The felt and experienced heat of the sunlight. When you feel the sunlight on your skin and it nourishes you with vitamin D and you feel alive and you can breathe and it's a happy sunny day and it changes your mood or something like that, that's a weak analogy to the work of the Spirit in our lives, right? We feel and we experience it and it indwells us and infuses into us and it does God's sanctifying work in us. I love that analogy because Jesus says that you can't see the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. How do you see the sun in the sky through the sunlight? The sunlight delivers the vision of the sun. So Jesus Christ gives us a vision, an exact representation, shows us exactly what God looks like in human form. And so I love that analogy. What's not great about that analogy is that you think, okay, the sunlight is not quite what the sun is, right? It's like a degraded element from the sun. And the heat that we feel on a sunny day is nice, but we definitely don't want to be in the sun because that's right, that we we would be incinerated. And so it's nice to be in the sunlight. It's not so great to be in the sun. So the sunlight and and the heat of the sun that we feel here is like a degraded version. And we don't want to think of the sun and spirit as like degraded gods with a lowercase g, but fully God, fully and completely God. And that's, again, the mystery of the Trinity. So just take it as an analogy. I'm not giving a scientific description of God, but I'm just sort of helping us think about how God is triune and how this works. Here's another quick analogy. Imagine the Father having two arms of love, because God is love, extending out from him into the world. One arm of salvation, Jesus, and another arm of sanctification. And with these two arms, he's gathering up the people of his love and bringing them back into himself, right? That's a great metaphor. So uh, I don't know if you see, I mean, you see this, I think, but Galatians 2.20 I have here, and and I've wanted to have also the descending spirit here um, to represent that, but see, then that would make me out to be God, and I'm getting second opinions on that because I don't uh, want to give that that impression. But I really would like to because I love that metaphor. God's two saving and sanctifying arms reaching into the world. And so those are two sort of weak analogies, but what we want to say is that there's emphatically one God, one and only one God. The Bible proves that time and time again. There's one God in whom we live and move and have our being. There's one God who defeats all the false gods and exalts his name over the earth. And Jesus the Son shares in the being of his divine Father and is sent from the Father's love to us. And then Jesus himself breathes the Spirit into us, that third divine person. And the Father, Son, and Spirit eternally know and love one another, sharing the same divine being. There aren't three omnipotent, all-powerful beings in the universe. There's just one. The Father, Son, and Spirit share that one single same omnipotence. There aren't three omniscient, all-knowing, perfectly wise beings in the universe. There's just one. There aren't three omnibenevolent, perfectly loving. They They share the single same love, and yet they're distinct. And so the Holy Spirit is God in us. You are literally filled with the same Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit by which Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Spirit by which Jesus cast out demons and healed the sick. That's in us. And then we might wonder, okay, if that Spirit is in us, how come I'm not living like Jesus? How come I don't have all of that power? I don't wield all of that power. Well, that's exactly the process of sanctification, of that same Spirit living in us. 
And us learning to live in the Spirit and live by the Spirit just as Jesus did. Jesus said that my disciples will do the same things and even greater things. Even greater things. Why is that? Not because we're by any means greater. That's not true at all. But because the same Spirit is operating in us. The very same Spirit. So now I want to read you one last thing. Here's our, here's our chief text for today, to think about the work of the Spirit in our lives. Um, when I first read the book of Galatians, I found a very um, uncomfortable description of me there um, that I was shocked to find, and I don't know, maybe it describes you too. Paul says this in Galatians 5. He says, if, uh, 5, 18 through 26, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's really, really bad news. That's really, really bad news for me. But, thank God, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belonged to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Outside of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit by Jesus Christ, I am everything before the but. That's, that's all I have to give. And those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the end for me. It's unbelievable, but in and through and by the Holy Spirit, I have joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I have sanity. I have sanity. It's amazing. I don't always live in it. I don't know about you, but sometimes I do these dumb things to sabotage my own life and to sabotage the work of the Spirit in me. And I don't know why. I can't understand why. But yet God is still so faithful. He doesn't revoke his gifts. You would think anyone. If you gave good gifts to a friend that you love and that friend flouted the gifts and didn't trust and was still skeptical of your goodwill towards them, you'd say, okay, <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. You just revoke the gifts and you'd move on to somebody who would appreciate. And God doesn't. I don't know why not. He keeps giving and keeps providing. And he's simply chosen. He said, I've simply chosen to love you. Is it because of all the great things I've done? Uh, yeah, the, the great things you've done, like uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, those sorts of things. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> Not so great. 
not so great. Those are the things that I've offered. And what has he returned? That's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, just keep in step with what God's already doing in us. Just keep in step. And again, the life of my mother-in-law, her name was Carolyn. Uh, She was a flawed, imperfect woman. But she just kept in step with the Spirit. She didn't do anything dramatic or anything, uh, you know, you didn't even know her name. Um, You know, I've known Scott for years, and he would say the same thing because he pastored um, her children and nephews and nieces and some of her grandchildren for, for years. And so he knows that family well. He'd say the same thing. Um, here's somebody that, that you don't know, but a life uh, that was lived in step with the Spirit and the testimonies now. Um, all of the, the critical things, all of the sins are already being forgotten. They're already being forgotten. Her imperfections. That's not the legacy that she left. That's not the impact that she left on people. It was Christ and her was the impact that she left on people. Well, let's pray. And let's invite that same spirit to do that work in us. Father, we love you, not because we're full of love, but because you first loved us. And you've actually given us the love with which to love you. We've learned to love and forgive, not because we have love and forgiveness in ourselves, but because you have it, and that's what you are by nature, and you give it to us. You've called us to good works in you, works of peace, works of joy, righteous works that we don't have the power in and of ourselves to complete. Again, Lord, you call us to these works, and you complete them in us. You call us by name. We confess now with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, though we use the same tongue with which to lie, we, we, we sin in our hearts, we sin in our deeds, and yet you continue to love. And in your love, you call us, you've saved us in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you sanctify us in your Holy Spirit. And Lord, if you do tremendous, incredible, miraculous things through our lives, we are grateful and we accept. If you use us to cast out demons and raise the dead, to prophesy, we're thankful. And Lord, if those things rarely or never happen in our lives, the continuous and powerful work of the Spirit is the same. Through words of encouragement, through words of edification, through hugs of fellowship, through kindness, through giving and generosity to one another. Lord, you told us through your apostle, John, love one another. We don't have the strength to do that. We confess to you. We can't do that. We're too selfish. We care too much about ourselves. We don't love each other by nature. But yet you first loved us and have donated to us and given to us the love that eternally abides in you, the love that you've had for the world that is so strong and so deep that you sent the son of your own bosom, the son of your love, And in his love, he gave himself for us. That sacrificial love, Lord, let us grow in that for one another. Let us feel that and know that and share that, be gladdened by it, Lord, and live transformed lives. And and Lord, we just, we ask that each and every person here, 
as we live this life and as we pass on, that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren will say, we're blessed because of what the Lord did in my my father's life, my grandfather's life, my great-grandfather's life, my great-grandmother's life. And that testimony reverberates through the ages because of the work of your spirit, because of the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name.